Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to Stevenson Harwood's Oil and Gas podcast. Uh, my name is um, Peter Bennett, and I'm a partner at Stevenson Harwood. I'm a litigation arbitration partner focusing on commodities and natural resources. And one of the areas I cover is the LNG and gas markets, contracts and trading. I'm joined today by Stuart Beadnell, uh, who is well known in the LNG chartering and shipping world. And Stuart is the author of a publication to be uh, soon come out on LNG shipping and chartering. The topic today we're looking at is the current developments in the LNG uh, shipping and um, trading market, particularly the legal issues. Um, before I hand over to Stuart to discuss what the developments are in the chartering market, it might be helpful if I give a brief background of where we are economically. This year has seen a very sharp deceleration in the gas demand throughout the world. There's been a decline in India and Pakistan, Thailand, Kuwait and Singapore. There's been some moderate increases in China and Europe. There's been a decline in the LNG spot and oil index contract prices, which themselves suggest that there might be a trigger in the demand, which will force the Korean and uh, Japanese um, power producers to move from coal to gas. Recently, there's been an increase, slight increase in the delivery um, of uh, LNG pricing in uh, North Asia, which is largely due to supply issues. But LNG, the energy trading market is notoriously opaque. Um, there have been imbalances. Uh, hence the reason why um, traders nowadays are looking to move their cargoes from different markets. And recently, Tokyo Gas in Japan has announced that it is setting up a trading platform. Um, there has been an increase in uh, the use of trading platforms, uh, digital platforms, to improve the apparent efficiency in LNG trading uh, through technology. But these are very much in their infancy. And at the end of the day, this is a market which is really a physical market. It's not digital. It requires huge investment. It requires a major physical product, which is unique in the way it's carried because it boils off if you don't cool it to at least minus 163 degrees centigrade. And you need ships. So therefore, you need serious contracts, um, which are protective of the particular parties. And on that basis, perhaps I could hand over to Stuart to give us an idea of where we are in the shipping market. Thank you, Peter. Um... I was just busy unmooting there. We're uh, all getting used to the technology, but sometimes think some things don't change. And one thing I might add that doesn't change greatly is the LNG shipping markets. Often we're asked to look at what's happened recently that's new um, and try and anticipate what's going to happen so we can be ready for it from a legal and risk viewpoint. But I think my general perception is that the LNG market is fairly conservative, although people have been saying, oh, there's big changes coming up. Uh, I, I think I've been hearing that for, I don't know, 20 years. Uh, and therefore, certainly from a, a legal and risk viewpoint, I would say things pretty much the same. The uh, LNG, both methane and now increasingly ethane, is carried on time charter terms, even though other oil and products, they're often carried on voyage charter terms. And why is that? Uh, that's a question that people have often asked because uh, I've been involved in uh, producing various voyage charter forms. But I think the reason is that where the cargo is being used for propulsion, which is obviously unique to the LNG trade, that the boil off from the cargo uh, is used in the main engine. The charterer 
who owns the cargo and is providing the fuel on time charter terms does want to control how its cargo is used, the speed of the vessel, uh, and how much of the boil-off is to be used for propulsion. So I think that's the main reason. So that remains the uh, standard form for chartering operations, even for single voyages, and indeed even for contracts of freightment, which is a surprise to everybody in non-LNG trade because their contracts of freightment are always on voyage charter terms, but that's not the case in LNG. So um, that, that's still the basis of it. Having said that, the, the shell form has um, been quite dominant in people's agreement to use that. We're seeing the Shell LNG time two being uh, increasingly used now. Some people probably look at the two and think, well, one's a bit longer than the other, but basically the same with a few changes. I would suggest they, they should look more carefully at the uh, detailed performance clauses, which are tucked in at the uh, in the attachments to the, uh, the the form, because the second form does vary from the first on those points. The other area, really equifaction, i.e. using the boil-off gas and returning it to the cargo tanks, is common. The use of the normal LNG charter forms uh, and the performance terms uh, isn't really suitable where you have uh, really equipment. So we're often asked, um, can we use these terms? And the answer is no, they, they need to be renegotiated. Ethane vessels, whether they reliquify the gas or use it in the uh, main engine, um, depends. So um, careful thought needs to be given to the form uh, for those vessels. And the other change we do see, the old uh, 20 uh, long-term charters seem much less common these days, uh, much shorter. Some people say that's partly due to the changes in uh, how these contracts are audited um, and how they're treated. But I think it's largely due to the fact that the market has changed and people are less willing to commit to such long-term contracts. And the other area that hasn't really changed a great deal is the contracts of carriage, the bills of leading. We're often asked, why are these not the same as bills of leading in other trades? And the answer to that is the way in which LNG is bought and sold. And I think, Peter, that's uh, closer to your area than mine. Yes, thank you, Stuart. In relation to the trading side, there's four particular points I want to cover, um, including the point you mentioned about the bill of lading. The first point I'd like to cover is the question of the right to reject an LNG cargo. With all these cargoes going around and um, huge amounts of investment in uh, the cargo and their deliveries to customers, one of the issues we've often found is the uh, attempts by buyers to try and move the deliveries. And uh, this has often, often caused a problem. And what you'll find sometimes is uh, the attempts by a buyer to think about rejecting an LNG cargo as a means of actually trying to create some space often to bring in one of their own cargoes. And if you look at LNG contracts, trading contracts, you'll find that unlike many bulk commodity contracts, rejecting an LNG cargo is actually really very, very difficult, particularly in relation to off-spec. And if you look at the LNG cargo uh, trading contracts, you will find that there's a tiered methodology um, in relation to rejection. 
um, there are no contracts in the energy market where the, you have the typically implied terms of quality, which you find in the Sale of Goods Act. They're all excluded. And what you have is a specification, because at the end of the day, you are delivering quantities of energy. And the right to reject is given in relation to the failure to comply with the specification. But it isn't an automatic right to rejection. And um, what you often find is in relation to DES deliveries, for example, the specification or the, or the compliance of the specification is provided to the buyer almost immediately after loading and then by way of a certificate of analysis. But even then, even if the certificate or the notification shows that LNG to be delivered is actually out of spec, the buyer doesn't have a right to reject, usually, unless it then seeks to exercise reasonable endeavors to ensure that its third-party buyer facility operator can accept the LNG. So it doesn't just give them a right to reject against a certificate of analysis which shows it's out of spec. It must then make these reasonable endeavor attempts to actually have the LNG accepted by the um, third-party operator. And this is particularly important in relation to gas or LNG coming to the UK, where you have requirements under the UK gas market for the LNG or the gas to meet a particular Wobby index number, which is the index by which you determine the amount of energy produced by a given volume of gas. Uh, in the UK, we have a specific requirement for the LNG Wobby index number. And sometimes uh, LNG comes in, which is infringement of Wobby index requirement. But the facilities in the UK do have the ability to actually treat the LNG to be imported. So it does comply with Wobby index requirements. So it's actually very, very hard indeed to uh, reject LNG for breach of specification. And the other thing to bear in mind is also what you find in contracts is in relation to things like refusal of consent with LNG contracts, which are traded back to back. Complying with your time limits is very, very critical. And sometimes if you, for example, uh, opt to change the name of the carrying vessel out of time, consent is required of the buyer before that can be given. And they need the consent of the third party facility operator. And often the third party operator would require compensation or some other form of recompense as a condition for it to give its consent. So it's, it's a recognition that you really do need to comply with your timing requirements. The other point which is crossing the desk here is in relation to uh, non-oral modification clauses. Uh, you'll find in all LNG contracts that agreements to vary the contract must be in writing. And after the Supreme Court decision in um, Rock Advertising, the position now is that in writing means effectively in writing, nothing oral, nothing by conduct, but in writing. And this is very important if, for example, you're looking to change the agreed contractual delivery range in an LNG cargo. You can't change it by reference to conduct or by implication. It must be in writing. The other thing to bear in mind is questions of the reasonable nature of the consent, if consent is required. Reasonableness has now been defined in relation to hydrocarbon contracts in this Apache against uh, Ineos decision in the Supreme Court. Um, forgive me, it was the High Court which basically said reasonableness does have elements in this context of good faith and consent is required in relation to the performance of a contract unless you are having a requirement to have some sort of mitigating or compensatory requirements, the consent should actually be given. So it can't be used as a means of extracting a price which would otherwise be available in the performance of the contract. And then what takes us to really the position of 
what Stuart was alluding to before about the bill of lading. And this is where the LNG market really has not strangely kept the pace with the traditional trading markets because it doesn't have, um, I've never yet seen a bill of lading used in the trading of LNG it, as a document title. I think traditionally nowadays, it's very rarely uh, to be traded on CIF terms. It's usually DES terms. And the long-term contracts may be under FOB terms, in which case you will take out long-term charter contracts of freightment. But in relation to trading on into markets, it's generally felt to be DES terms. And the reason is this is historical. Traditionally, these were long-term upstream contracts over 20 years where you had a dedicated supply and a dedicated buyer for its own use. Uh, the ship would load in a liquid faction facility, head to the buyer, discharge, and the ships would come back again. It would repeat this. It was the same vessel or the same vessels. It was the same buyer. And all the LNG, of course, would purchase on an outturn basis. So the buyer didn't really care about the loaded quantity or the boil-off during the voyage because they would buy what was discharged. So there really wasn't a need for a bill of lading. And what was issued by the ship owner may have been a seaway bill, but that isn't a negotiable document of title. That's the contract of carriage or the receipt. So the ships didn't have bills of lading on board. And even though LNG trading has evolved, it still involved the major players. And they just kept the traditions. It's rare that you find LNG being misdelivered. Uh, there are, as I say, major players in place. And therefore, I think there's never been any need to have an LNG bill. But if anybody would like to think about developing one, then I think BIMCO would be very, very interested. And the liquidity in the LNG market hasn't really developed in the same way it has, for example, in other commodity markets. And as I mentioned before, since we are now looking at mostly DES trades, and not SIF trades. There's never really been any need for the bill of lading. Now, Stuart, I don't know whether you had any commentary in relation to the bill of lading and how it connects with the charters, because they are mentioned in the charters, but they're not always used, as I've mentioned before. Yes, um, there is a, a specific legal reason why, uh, in addition to, as you've described, the historical reasons, the legal reason is if um, somebody is buying an LNG cargo on the sea, what quantity of LNG is actually being purchased? Because everybody knows that the quantity will not be the actual amount loaded and therefore the amount shown on the bill of lading. And obviously the charter of a vessel is aware of that and is, as I've already mentioned, likes to control how the cargo is used for propulsion and how much is boiled off. But obviously a purchaser on the sea wouldn't be in that position so um, there is a fundamental reason why the, the traditional bill of lading really doesn't work in the LNG business and what we see frequently is P&I clubs looking obviously at potential liabilities under bills of lading don't find this a very easy topic and therefore as mentioned and perhaps work is needed on developing a suitable LNG bit of lading that everybody um, is able to use, but um, I think that is still work in progress. There are bills of lading used here, but they're customs cleared bills of lading, and, we're often, and they're often switched, but they're not used as documents of title. And the other thing is that the um, there are uh, provisions under the time charts and voice charts for indemnities to try and cover the position in relation to the outturn quantity being different from the shipped quantity. So they try and compensate it, I think, in, in the absence of a bill of lading, they try and compensate it by these indemnities. But 
as, as Stuart was saying, we still don't actually have a negotiable document of title, which is a critical security document. So how that fits in with trade finance, for example, in relation to bills of lading and LNG cargoes, can only be put down to the fact that there may be more due diligence by financing banks and buyers and sellers on actually their counter, um, and that they're perfectly happy on the basis without a bill. There, there is an added complication, of course, is that the ownership of the heel may not fit entirely the ownership of the LNG cargo. So there's really two quantities of LNG on board the heel, which may be used during the ballast passage as a form of boil-off for fuel, and also a way of keeping the tanks cool, which obviously you need to do before loading. Uh, then on top of that would be loaded the actual quantity being sold. So that's an added complication in, in how the bills describe what's on board and what any receiver might be entitled to receive. And of course, LNG has to be retained on board. The full amount is not discharged at the discharge port, unless the parties agree that is needed for a particular reason. But normally, an amount of cargo is retained for the next voyage. And trying to explain that to customs officials can be quite complicated sometimes. But uh, uh, that is another reason why traditional bills don't really work. Yes, and why they have the customs bill. Yes, exactly. Well, that covers my points, Stuart. But if you've got any further comments, perhaps you'd like to make them. Yes, perhaps one theme to take away. People often ask me, what's the difference between LNG and other cargoes? And I just say, well, LNG's LNG and other cargoes aren't, really. Um, and difficulty sometimes, those involved in the LNG business know everything there is to know about it and seem obviously perfectly happy with the way it operates. Anybody coming into it from outside the LNG business find it all, well, can find it perplexing. So uh, I hope we manage to steer a middle course. Hopefully that's useful guidance from, from whatever viewpoint. Thank you very much. 